Corinthians 10, 1 to 14. But I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Thank you, Connie. Kev, you're supposed to fill me in on things like that Mother's Day is the most attended service of the year. I need to know that ahead of time. I would have planned a sermon. I was just going to wing it. But. In all seriousness, we continue our series through uh, 1 Corinthians today. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you've heard the phrase before, those who fail to learn from history... Right, are doomed to repeat it. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. While the sentiment has been articulated by a lot of different people over time, this version of it is attributed to British statesman Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that is exactly what this passage says to us. This passage is a warning to those in Corinth and to those in Camden, that those who do not know history, those who fail to learn from history, are doomed to repeat it. Connie just read that for us. And again, 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and open up in your Bible there to follow along with me. Or in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1137. It starts on page 1137 if you're using the Black Pew Bibles today. Paul reminds us in this passage to learn from history, lest we be destined to repeat it. And specifically, he's writing about the history of Israel here. And he says, this is what I'm talking about right there in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Examples. Friends, you can learn things by one of two ways. Through the example of others' experience or through your own often painful experience or the school of hard knocks, as they say. And if you choose to learn by your own experience rather than looking at the example of others, the thing is, you're simply repeating the same mistakes that have already been made before. 
There's nothing new under the sun. The mistakes that you choose to make today are mistakes that have already been made by those who've gone before us. So we can choose to learn from their example or we can learn from our experience. And Paul warns those in Corinth, learn from Israel's example. Learn from Israel's example. Because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And these things have taken place as examples for us. So, learn from them. And what do we learn? What do we learn from them? Paul begins here in verses 1-5 through by illuminating the parallels between the people of God then, in ancient Israel, and the people of God today, in Corinth or in Camden. He starts in verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, we're going to stop there because Paul actually said something really profound in that sentence, and it's really easy to miss. Because he tucked two little words in the middle of the sentence that says something huge, but we might have just glossed over it. And the two words are, our fathers. Our fathers. I don't want you to be unaware, brother, that our fathers were under the cloud. Now think about this. Paul is talking about who? He's speaking about the Jewish people. He's talking about the deliverance of the Jewish people from their slavery in Egypt. God delivered them, leading them by a cloud through the parted Red Sea to freedom. So he's speaking about the Jewish people, but who's he writing to? He's writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was the majority of Gentile, non-Jewish people. So Paul writes to the Gentiles and he talks about our fathers. He says, hey, you Gentiles, remember our fathers. Paul is including the Gentiles in the history of God's people. He's including the Gentiles in the people of God. Friends, this is profound. Because before Christ, the chasm between Jew and Gentile was almost uncrossable. The Jews were God's chosen people, and the Gentiles were not. But what Paul implies here is that now in Christ, the Gentiles can call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah, our fathers. In Christ, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down, so they are now our fathers. Paul celebrated this same truth throughout his letters. And especially in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, he writes to the Gentiles and says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, here's the gospel, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That in Christ, those who were once far away, separated from God, alienated, without hope, without God in this world, are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We who were spiritual orphans have been adopted by God and included in His people. So they are our fathers as well. 
And Paul celebrated this truth uh, when he spoke to the Gentiles in Galatians 3.29. He said, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ, then Abraham, Isaac, and David, all the promises given to our fathers are given to you. All the stories that we find recorded in the Old Testament, those are now your story. Gentiles are now included. Friends, this is good news. It's good news because I'm going to guess that the majority of us here today are not ethnically Jewish. Just as the majority in Corinth were Gentiles, so are we. Yet, Yet, Paul recounts the history of our fathers. They're now our fathers because in Christ we've been made Abraham's offspring. We who were far away have been brought close, part of God's people and heirs to all of God's promises. And this is good news. And friends, for some of you here today or logged in watching us online, maybe you're feeling far away from God. Maybe right now you're feeling like a a man without a country or a woman without a story. And if so, then hear now the good news. The good news of a God who in Christ is making men and women His sons and daughters. Who in Christ is making them members of His people. Who's giving them a story. Making them part of His story in the world. And giving them an identity and a purpose. Those things for which you and I long. Friends, this is the Gospel. And Paul continues, he's painting parallels for those in Corinth and and us in Camden today, between God's people then in Israel and God's people today. And and look back to to verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, when God delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, He led them by a cloud, His presence in the cloud. He led them through the parted Red Sea, so they passed through the divided waters and were baptized into Moses. And he says, just as you Corinthians, who were led by the Spirit, by faith, passed through the waters and were baptized into Christ. He he says, Israel, when Israel wandered in the wilderness, God fed them with spiritual food, manna from heaven, and spiritual drink, water from the rock. Now, Now we remember that we saw previously in this letter, spiritual doesn't mean like ethereal or immaterial. It means empowered by God's Spirit. So he says, God's Spirit sent you bread from heaven. God's Spirit, the power of His Spirit, gave you water from the rock. And in the same way, Paul's writing, you Corinthians, you've also been fed by the Spirit, spiritual food, the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ, the wine, the blood of Christ. Just as they were baptized into Moses, you've been baptized into Christ. Just as they were fed by God, you Corinthians have been fed by God. And then he makes a kind of a crazy sounding statement here at the end of three. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now what's going on with this statement? 
Well, if, if you remember the story of Israel as they went through the wilderness, the very first thing they encountered is they got out of Egypt, and that works up an appetite. And they were thirsty entering into the wilderness, and they started to grumble and complain. You brought us out of Egypt, and now we're going to die of thirst here in the wilderness. So God directed them to a rock in Exodus 17. He said, Moses, strike the rock. He did. Water poured out of the rock, and Israel drank and was satisfied. But we find a similar episode near the end of their wilderness journeys in Numbers chapter 20. Again, there's Israel in the wilderness, thirsty and complaining. Again, the Lord speaks to Moses, and Moses ends up striking a rock, and water pours out, and Israel their thirst is quenched. But it brings up an important question. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. So what did they drink between the times? We have a rock at the beginning. We had a rock at the end. But what about the other, you know, 39 years and 363 days? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say but a rabbinic tradition grew up that said that the rock from which the water flowed next to the 17 actually followed Israel through their wilderness journey. And for 40 years, Israel continually drank water from that rock. Now here, without saying that that's what actually happened, Paul's actually drawing on that tradition and saying, well, actually, the rock that followed Israel through the desert and provided for all of their needs that rock was actually Christ. He's, he's drawing on this tradition. He says, you know who was actually God's provider? It was Christ. Christ was with them, with Israel, as she traveled the wilderness for four years and made sure that Israel had all she needed. So Paul's point is he's drawing parallels in this passage between the people of Corinth and the people of Camden and then God's people then. You were both baptized. You've been fed spiritual food. You've been led and provided for by Christ. Look how similar you are. But, people in Corinth, people in Camden, there's one way you should not be similar to God's people who've gone before you. You see these similarities. There's one way you really need to work to not be similar, to not be like those who wandered in the wilderness. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, Paul's point is, with all the benefits that they had received, with deliverance from slavery by passing through the sea, spiritual provision as they went through the wilderness, the Lord's very presence to lead and to guide them, yet most of them were unfaithful, and they ended up dying. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of them never saw the promised land. So considering how similar you are to them, Paul writes, learn from their example and don't repeat the same mistakes because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And Paul says, well, let's, let's talk about some of the example that they left for us that you should not repeat. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this quote is from Exodus chapter 32, which was Israel's unfaithfulness with the golden calf. 
Now, those in Corinth and in Camden today, we may not be tempted to bow down to statues of gold, stone, or wood. However, we are all tempted to bow down to idols. In his magnificent book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller defines an idol as, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel as if my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Such a thing is an idol. He goes on to explain that idol is something we can't live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules that we once honored and to harm others, even ourselves, in order to have it. So if you want to identify idols in your heart, friends, try completing this sentence. Life has meaning if. Or I only have worth if. If you, if you complete the sentence saying, Life only has meaning if I win, if I have power, influence, success, respect, then your idol's power. If you finish the sentence and say, I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by blank and fill in the blank, then you have an approval idolatry. You're worshiping the idol of approval. And if so, friends, which God are you going to serve? For whose approval are you going to live? The fickle approval of the crowd? The ever-changing approval of a confused culture? The love of those who will turn on you and cancel you the moment you transgress the approved dogma? Who's going to be your God from whom you're going to seek approval? If you complete the sentence, life only has meaning. If I have this kind of a pleasure or quality of life, then your idol is comfort. And we're talking about a self-centered type of comfort, a freedom that says, I want to do for me what I want to do when I want to do it. My freedom and my comfort and my seeking of comfort shouldn't be confined by any person or institution or obligation. I serve the God of desire. What I desire, when I desire, how I desire. If you complete the sentence, life only has meaning or wor- and I only have worth if I get mastery over this area of my life, then you have a control idolatry, whether it's controlling you or controlling others. I only have worth if I have control. And often people like this have a self-righteousness. I'm living up to standards. I'm in control of myself in a way that other people aren't. Friends, there are so many more idols that might tempt us today. But the point is, is that we're tempted, like Israel was, to idols. They may not be golden calves, but there are plenty of gods after which our hearts long. And Paul says, remember the example, because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. The Israelites face judgment for their idolatry. Corinthians, Camdenites, why do you think you're going to escape judgment for yours? And in verse 7, Paul's actually quoting from Exodus 32 when he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They rose up to play. What do you think they were playing? Soccer? Ultimate Frisbee? Checkers? The worship of pagan deities often included sexual acts and sometimes even great orgies. And that's implied in the next warning Paul gives in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 10.8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
Now, now, Paul's referring here to a specific incident that happened in Numbers 25. People were continually rising up to play, indulging in sexual immorality and unfaithfulness. Now, you might remember, this is not the first time in this letter that Paul has had to address sexual immorality. In chapters 5 and 6 of this letter, Paul strictly warned the Corinthians against sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just as in Israel's day, 23,000 Israelites, they fell in a single day, learn from their example that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in the same way, verse 9, Paul continues, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, here Paul's referring to an episode that we find in Numbers chapter 21, where Israel became impatient with the Lord's provision of food and water. Now, confirming Paul's earlier statement that he believed that Christ was the rock who followed Israel, in their impatience, Paul actually says that Israel was testing Christ himself. In their impatience. They were testing Christ himself. They were impatient and discontent with God's provision. I'm glad we never are. I'm glad we're never discontent and impatient with God's timing and provision. You know, again, how are we putting Christ to the test? How am I looking at my life situation? How am I letting God know, well, I can do it better, and I understand it better than you, God. I know better. In fact, God, what you've given me is not good. We're testing Christ. We're impatient with His timing. We're questioning His provision. We're judging His goodness. And Paul writes to those in Corinth and those in Camden, learn from Israelites' example. They fell in the desert, and so were you. And finally, in verse 10, Paul concludes, Don't, no, neither should you grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Friends, despite all that God had done from Israel, the deliverance, the plagues, the provision, we find Israel constantly grumbling. Exodus 15, 16, 17, Numbers 14, 16, 17, grumble, grumble, grumble. It's a good thing that we never grumble against God, isn't it? Yeah, see previous point. Paul writes that those who grumbled were destroyed by the destroyer. Friends, the destroyer is the name given to the angel that passed through Egypt on the night of the Passover and killed the firstborn who were not covered by the blood of the Lamb. So Paul implies that unfaithful, grumbling Israel suffered the same judgment as faithless Egypt. And really, this whole passage, this whole passage should shock us and it should really shake us. Because first, we can't help but notice just how direct Paul is in this passage. Verse 5, they're overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 8, 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9, some were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, some were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul is speaking about God's people. 
His people Israel. God is writing to God's people in Corinth. God is warning them about judgment. Friends, He's not talking about judgment of those people out there. He's talking about judgment on the people in here. Paul says to the Corinthians, remember the example of Israel. They were faithless and they were judged for it. And those who fail to learn from the example of history are doomed to repeat it. And so for a second time, Paul reiterates that the history has been recorded for us as an example as for those in Corinth. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, when Paul says those of us on whom the end of the ages has come, friends, when Christ came, He initiated, He inaugurated the end of the ages. And one day Christ will come again and He'll bring a close to this and to all ages. So what we find recorded in the Old Testament history was written for us now in the end of the ages that we might learn how to live now by the example of those that lived then. Because those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And what should we learn? Well, we learn, as Paul lays out, the parallels between Corinth and Camden and how similar we are to ancient Israel. Baptized, fed on spiritual food, led by Christ. And yet, those in Israel were unfaithful, idolaters, sexually immoral, those who tested the Lord and who grumbled against Him. And they were judged and destroyed. So Paul says, hey guys, learn from Israel's example and don't get cocky. Verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Now again, if you've been with us from the beginning, you've heard from this letter that one of the huge problems going on in Corinth was arrogance and pride. People were puffed up. They thought they possessed superior knowledge. They were the really spiritual people. And Paul says, don't get cocky. You think you have some kind of special knowledge and you're standing so firm? Well, so did many in Israel. And they fell into temptation. They fell under judgment. So let anyone who thinks that he stands firm take heed lest he fall. And friends, that would have struck a healthy fear into the Corinthians. And it should strike a healthy fear into you and to me. You might remember last week, Paul talked about his own following Christ and, and how he follows Christ like an athlete training for a marathon. First Corinthians nine twenty six and 27. I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Like many in Israel, lest I should fall under judgment, lest I should fail to complete the race, lest I should fail to cross the finish line. And in light of this, Paul says, listen, I'm not just playing at this Christianity thing. I'm taking seriously the call to follow Christ and to discipline myself. I'm not running aimlessly. I'm not beating the air. I am disciplined because I am a disciple. I am serious about avoiding temptation. I'm not going to play with sin. I'm growing. I'm striving. I'm pursuing. I'm seeking. Lest after preaching to others, I should find myself disqualified 
falling away under judgment like many in Israel did. Paul had a healthy fear. But church, the question is, do we? Do we have a healthy fear of falling? Are we just playing with this Christianity thing? Are we those who think we stand firm but should take heed lest we fall? Are we like those in Corinth who think we have some kind of secret knowledge or special position or or we've had an experience? Are we those that fail to learn from history and thus are destined to repeat it? Because the example that Paul gives us here is vivid. The warning is dire. The judgment is real. Church, are you following Christ? Now, I know it's hard. And Jesus knows it's hard. Jesus said it would be hard to follow. And He said, count the cost of following Me. However, church, He hasn't left us alone. The good news is He hasn't left us alone in our temptations as we try to follow Him. Verse 13 No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, too often it drives me nuts This verse is incorrectly rendered as God will not give you more than you can handle. Friends, that is not what this Bible verse says, and that's nowhere in the Bible. Even though it's in so many popular songs, which I can't stand to listen to. It doesn't say God will not give you more than you can handle. Because, friends, we regularly face more than we can handle. Because the truth is, none of us here can handle sin. None of us here can always stand strong in temptation. None of us are strong enough. None of us are good enough. None of us will remain standing firm to the end if you are on your own. We regularly face more than we can handle. But the gospel, the good news, is that the Lord is faithful. Not that I am, but that the Lord is. And He has provided a way of escape. And His way of escape is named Jesus. Jesus is our way of escape because we are too feeble to stand. We are too weak to resist. We are too easily overcome to endure. So He must hold us fast. It's so true what we sang together this morning. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. And when the tempter would prevail... He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He, Christ, must hold me fast. Church, we regularly face more than we can handle, so He must hold us fast. Christ is our escape. He is our stronghold against temptation. He is our shelter from judgment. Not our knowledge. Not our strength. Not our goodness. He must hold me fast. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Christ will hold us fast. So we, church, what must we do? We must cling to Him who clings to us. Church, cling to Him who clings to us. 
And in order to cling to Him, we need to flee from all that is not Him. We need to let go of all that is not Him. And that's why Paul concludes in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, that word, therefore, indicates that this is the point towards which Paul's been moving. All of my argument up till now, therefore, flee from idolatry. Therefore, in light of all I've argued, flee from idolatry. Some in Israel ceased to cling to the Lord and they clung to idols. But a way of escape has been made available. A way of escape, friends, has been made available. And those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But you cling to Him. He clings to you. Learn from the example. We can have no other gods alongside the Lord. No other loves to compete for our affections. No other allegiances to call our loyalty. No other desires greater than our desire to love and to serve the Lord. So as we saw in the example of the Israelites, those who followed idols and chose to cling to the idols face judgment. Friends, how do you think we will escape if we do the same? Paul concludes as we conclude. Therefore, my beloved, flee. Flee from idolatry. Church, from whatever today you need to flee. For whatever temptation you face today, face it in His power, for He is our escape. The Gospel, the good news, is that God has provided a way of escape and His name is Jesus. And so today, from what do you need to flee? What do you need to let go of? And how do you, like Paul did, need to discipline yourself so that you might hold fast to Him? Lest after preaching to others, you should be disqualified and fall under judgment like Israel did. Having learned from this history, church, by His grace and power, how will you go forth now and not repeat that history? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the good news, for the Gospel, that You hold us fast. Thank You that we who are too weak, that we who are too small, that we who are unable, You have provided a way of escape. And having been reminded of the history of those that have gone before, Father, may we by the power of Your Spirit, cling ever more tightly to You. May we discipline ourselves that we might run the race that is before us, that we might cross the finish line, that we might not be disqualified and fall under judgment as some did. But by Your power of Christ within us, make us faithful. Help us follow. Help us run. And bring glory to Your name. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.